all joking aside, and I know this comes up later in the pod, but um, having the opportunity to go home for Thanksgiving is one of the bonuses that the people who aren't playing this weekend uh, get to have. But I imagine when you get to our age, Pat, and we're in our 40s, having one Thanksgiving memory of being on campus and having Thanksgiving um, with your teammates probably wouldn't isn't so bad. You're going to have plenty of family Thanksgivings the rest of your life. So if you are one of the people lucky enough to play this weekend, uh, don't sweat it. After every game, I think, as a coach, you want to try to – you wish you had redemption. You know, you wish you could fix your mistakes. So I made a lot of mistakes at Western game. We too, if I could correct them, we were going into this one and play a little better. We've improved to the point uh, where, you know, we have some things that maybe um, that didn't work earlier that maybe uh, can help us uh, in this game. Thursday, we will practice, meet in the morning and practice, uh, be done by 10 a.m. And, you know, we have a, we have enough local guys here that, you know, we want to be able to let them go home and, and be with their families during Thanksgiving. Uh, and quite a few of our our. Uh, our guys from uh, from a distance are going home with those guys to, to spend with their families. So uh, that's our plan right now. We'll depart after practicing here on campus uh, Friday morning. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your twice-weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 263, the one with the turkey hangover, and it's season 13, number 26, the podcast for November 29th, 2019. Yeah, we do not take Thanksgiving off, and neither do the uh, three coaches who you just heard there a moment ago, Duke Greco of Delaware Valley, Chip Knapp of Wesley, Jeff Behrman of Union. Keith and I do not either. Yeah, that's me. I'm Pat Coleman. I'm the executive editor of D3Football.com. And I'm Keith McMillan, the co-host and longtime former player. I think I did that backwards. Well, I mean, uh, sadly, you have been a former player now for a long time. Much longer than I was an active player, for sure. That's definitely how it goes, right? I'm soon to be a uh, former consumer of turkey, but uh, the uh, we're, we're recording this before birds come out of the oven in most places or before i don't know i assume the bears will come back and and beat the lions uh here today but that might not actually happen who the heck knows but uh we've got a a second round of playoffs to look forward to and uh, that's what we're here to do yeah it's funny with all this family time on thanksgiving once you get to whatever house you're going to there really is a lot of downtime and hopefully you're not spending it all in your phone, but whatever uh, amount you are, we'll be glad for the hour that you spend with us between now and kickoff on Saturday. Pat, I think we got a great round two teed up. I'm on record over the years as being sort of a eh about round one guy. I love round two and round three because that's when the great teams uh, get to play against each other. And all of a sudden, these teams who have you know intentionally or, or unintentionally been coasting through these uh, past several weeks just based on the schedule being easy or getting the first first round matchup that isn't really a good matchup for them. Suddenly you got your Mountain Unions playing North Centrals. You have Salisbury and Union, a matchup of undefeated teams and uh, and great matchups all across the bracket. And considering round one was better than we might usually come to expect, I have really high hopes for round two. We've got great games from starting at noon all the way to starting at uh, noon Pacific on the West Coast. Yeah, the entire top 10 in the D3football.com 
uh, top 25 polls still alive. And some of the round two matchups by spots in that poll are one versus five, nine versus 10, 12 versus eight, six versus 13. The CCIW, NJAC, and ARC each have two teams alive still. And there's a West Coast team still playing, but it's not the usual suspects from the Pacific Northwest. There are Purple Powers, Deep Burgundies and Reds, Wolverines and Warhawks, Regular Hawks, Cardinals, Golden Eagles, Dogs and Cats, Purple Raiders, Johnnies, Aggies, Dutch and Dutchmen, Living Together, Wartburg and Muhlenberg, Central and North Central Union and Mount Union. Most importantly, we got some darn good games teed up. Round two is when the party really gets rocking. Mass hysteria! So wake up from that turkey coma, digest this pod so you can be ready for those noon kickoffs on Saturday. Yeah, uh, I will be definitely using copious amounts of caffeine to get out of the turkey coma and to get us ready for that Saturday full of football games. But before we get there, uh, I should take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It. You know Gotta Have It. They're the 3D fan foam wall signs that you can get at gottahaveitfanfoams.com. If that's too much for you to type on your phone while you are listening to the podcast, you can find it in the show notes for this episode and any of the last uh, couple of dozen episodes. And Keith, uh, obviously people are talking about, I don't know if you know this, this is like a big shopping day or something like that. And to have one of these for the uh, D3 fan in your life is probably a really good idea too. Absolutely, especially if you want to have something that you can touch and hold in your hands. You know, you can always screen grab the logo or whatever, but this is something that you can hang up in your home, uh, build a whatever team room or man cave around it you can take it to the game with you and wave it around and then bring it back home put it right back on the wall it's that durable it's also that light that it that it will travel and i think it's just pretty a pretty cool product that uh that lives up to the expectations that we set for ourselves in t3 where we want our we want everything to, to represent us well and look good but also um you know be big time yeah, there's a half dozen D3 teams already signed up. If you're a fan of Mary Harden, Baylor, or Mount Union, you should probably still be listening to this podcast. UW-Whitewater, same thing for you guys as well. Also, Johns Hopkins, East Texas Baptist, Lake Forest. And I know I have seen people discuss about other schools, maybe even other schools in Texas. Got to get you guys on there. And uh, you can find out more information about how to get your team added, especially if you're someone who, you know, is in a position to make that happen within an athletic department. Go to gottahaveitfanfoams.com and look for more information there. Also, before we get around to talking uh, more in-depth about this weekend's games, and we will, we'll go uh, bracket by bracket and game by game through the eight games that we have here in the second round. Of course, another piece of uh, big news coming out this week, as it traditionally does, in which we have the uh, semifinalists for the Gallardi Trophy. These are the uh, 12 people who... Uh, make the ballot out of the about 30 or so who were nominated by their schools. Now we're down to the 12, and uh, that includes a couple of people who were uh, on the list of, of uh, semifinalists last year. Jackson Erdman is a return. Joe Germanario is a return, wearing a different color this year, of course. And then uh, Brock Rudder was a finalist last year and is a finalist again and uh, obviously two of those three guys are still playing, and then there's a, a bunch of other people on the list as well, and I do not mean to short the other nine, but those are the three I decided to lead out with. Well, I think the the big opportunity that the three guys who are playing this weekend have, and that's uh, Joey Longoria, the senior defensive tackle for Mary Harden-Baylor, uh, Jackson Erdman, and Brock Rudder, is that they can still make a case for them to win this thing because uh, everyone else is, is in the clubhouse, and uh, we don't have to vote until 
a little bit later, uh, I believe after next week's game. So they actually may have an opportunity to do this uh, two more times. And and all three of those teams are possible to continue playing. Certainly, I think Brock Rutter's got the biggest opportunity to win himself the Gallardi Trophy by playing really well and upsetting Mount Union. It's the kind of thing that would draw a lot of attention. He would probably need to play really well, and, and Mount Union may may decide that they'd rather live and die, you know, live with North Central trying to run the ball, but they ran the ball really well last week against Wabash, so they may do the opposite and decide they want to sell out, stop the run, which gives Rudder some opportunities to try to push the ball down the field. So uh, this could still be interesting, and, and I think, you know, if, if none of those guys really wow – um, and because there's no Mountain Union person in the field, there's no Whitewater person in the finalists, then this could be a really wide open field. And uh, because the, the voter panel is a little different than before, I don't know if we'll be able to predict who all is, uh, who's, who's going to be the, the final four and who's going to come home with the trophy. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, in the past, you know, these type of awards have often been voted on by people who may not necessarily have a great connection to Division Three football, or they may have had a connection 25 years ago when this started and no longer do. I know one of the people who was on the voter list was a, a columnist who worked for the Roanoke paper, you know, covering the Stag Bowl in the early 90s. And I, you know, that person is no longer in a, in a Division Three town. They have really revamped the voter pool this year, which uh, is probably a good time to do it. Uh, you're, you're in a year where, if you know, picture you're the the J Club, the uh, you know the uh, Athletics Alumni Association of St. John's, which runs the Gallardi Trophy and has since day one. You know, you've got a guy who is you know who won the Gallardi Trophy last year, and rightfully so from St. John's, Jackson Erdman and an opportunity, a, a real likelihood that he might well win it again. And then you're panel is like you know at least in line potentially for some criticism about being homers and that sort of thing they uh the fact that you've really kind of revamped the voter population to balance it out nationally this is a really good year to do that yeah and and the other candidates are um there are some people who made some noise last week gavin zimbelman who went head to head with uh with jackson erdman certainly um someone who who caught my attention but you know it's hard to it's hard to vote for the guy who who didn't win the game, even though of course it's a team game. Uh, Jaquan Hemphill is is a name uh, that we know really well across D three uh, from Harden Simmons, running back who uh, who's been in you know one of the top running backs in the country for about three seasons now. Uh, Robert Schufford, who we got to talk about a lot uh, mid season when Birmingham Southern pulled that upset, and uh, he leads the country in rushing at about one hundred and eighty three point four yards per game. Wyatt Smith, Linfield quarterback. Wyatt Smith feels like he's been there forever. He's still a junior. He started as a freshman, coach's son, so you may know the name as well. Uh, Josh Parks, the, the running back from uh, St. Thomas, who, who has been tremendous. But uh, but St. Thomas not still playing at this point in the season, which usually or often they are. And then, of course, Mason Oppelhope, quarterback we talked about last week. So a lot of um, a lot of, lot of big names here, a couple other guys as well. But, I mean, there's there's some folks who um, who – for whatever reason, if if Rudder, Longoria, Urban don't don't go on to do much in the rest of this postseason, and uh, you know the fan voting is open until December 9th, and and our votes will come in around that time as well, then I think it's just a really wide open field without a necessarily necessary no brainer candidate, and that can be a little bit fun. Um, and you know if if Jackson Erdman leads his team to 51 points again this week and again the week after, then then maybe he does repeat. 
they uh, revamped the committee and they gave us at least the general breakdown of what this committee looks like. So I'll share that with you. 16 Division Three coaches, four from each region, four Division Three administrators, one from each region, eight uh, regional notable voters, uh, two from each region, uh, eight national voters with Division Three backgrounds. Uh, I think, Keith, you and I fall into that category. Uh, and then uh, the fan ballot, which Keith talked about. Uh, so you can do, uh, basically, you will, if you come to d3football.com, look for the Gilardi Trophy voting on our front page and go vote. You will contribute to one of the ballots, which will be thrown into the mix. We've had, you know, multiple tens of thousands of people vote in the past. And while, you know, Keith and I and the other voters will rank each player from top to bottom, they will take the uh, cumulative number of votes from the fan vote and apply that to a, uh, a ballot and do the same thing. So we're looking forward to seeing how that goes. Uh, you can, as Keith said, run that on the website on d3football.com through Monday, December 9th. Of course, it's also a big time for coaching changes. Thanksgiving week, not necessarily a big time for coaching changes. I think that's you know, somewhat uh, humane, and I appreciate that at the Division Three level we can manage not to uh, let people go in the middle of uh, Thanksgiving week. But uh, as I, by my count, I think we've got about uh, 10 changes in so far. In a normal year, we'll probably have, you know, another 20 to 30 of those. Uh, you know, we might not otherwise get a chance to talk about Brian Cullen, who's been the head coach at Worcester State for 37 years. Uh, the only coach that they've had, they uh, won the club football national championship in 1984 and then uh, turned that into a varsity program in 1985, back in the, in the, in the days in which you could easily do that. Uh, and he's the, the head coach there ever since. Got a chance to talk to that guy five ever ago whatever year it was i was living in connecticut which i guess would be 2006 i was there for wow, i completely forgot about that the year i That's lived right. in connecticut yeah uh yeah it's a time where i got to see a you know a bunch of games in new england including a, a worcester state wpi game on some friday nights at the beginning of the season so you know there's lots of these guys out there who you know, kind of toil in obscurity, even at the Division Three level. You think Division Three is obscure, and then you know a guy who's had, you know, a, a long successful career uh, has gone 181 and 165. Uh, you know, a, a team that has not, you know, made any playoff noise or anything like that. Just a guy who's been solid and been kind of the heart and soul of a program. Well, you know, for any of us, if we're lucky enough to hold a job for 37 years, that's pretty impressive. Uh, more good Saturdays than bad in that record. And, um, you know, I learned something from this podcast that and I'm supposed to be one of the people who who knows it all there. There's that's how vast D3 is. There's always something or some neat backstory that that um, we all, you know, didn't know. And that one, the club football thing actually was a detail that was either new to me or I'd forgotten over the years. Yeah, I think same. I don't know if I ever if I ever knew that one. So keep an eye on the, the coaching carousel. If it's not on the front page of d3football.com on a given day, you can find it under the news menu. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Jeff Behrman, the head coach 
at Union College. His team victorious on Saturday, rallying past Case Western Reserve 24-21 in the first round. Uh, Coach, first of all, congratulations on the win and uh, congratulations on getting to the second round. Thanks for joining us. Ah, thanks, Pat. It's, uh, it's great to be on with you. I appreciate you uh, recognizing the program and having us on. Well, it's hard not to recognize, uh, especially rallying from a, a 21 to three deficit. Uh, people, the media, fans buy into the storyline that it must be some great halftime adjustment. You must have had some rip roaring speech for the team at halftime to help them come back. So, what was it in reality? In reality, it was, hey guys, let's just relax, let's calm down, and let's get back to how we play football. Uh, but I will say this: I mean, in, the, in that first half. Uh, credit the Case Western Reserve, uh, their coaching staff and their players. They played an unbelievable half. And, and uh, you know, it was a combination of us not playing well, but them playing very, very well. Um, and uh, no, it was more just, hey, let's just uh, let's just get back to our basics. Let's do what we have to do. And uh, and they uh, there was no panic in them at halftime at all. It was a pretty calm, calm uh, halftime and calm locker room. You know, I think when we have looked at some of the big games that you guys have played and beaten some, uh, you know, some of the the best opponents on your roster, it's been behind a steady dose of IK Irabor, and that is not what happened on Saturday. So, you know, at what point was it, you know, the idea to we're going to try something else, or was that always the game plan to begin with? Did you know that Case was going to make that difficult for you, or you know, how did that kind of work out? Well, as we plan for a for a game every week, I mean, we're we're, we're definitely going to prioritize our run game. Uh, that's just a philosophical thing uh, for myself and our offensive staff. Uh, but watching the film of Case Western Reserve throughout the week, uh, they were very good against the run, and uh, you know, they just their 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 scheme was excellent. Their players were excellent, um, and they made it really really difficult to do that. Um, so, you know, it was just more of uh, that halftime, I guess. We did say, hey, we have to get in some of these different formations and, and throw the football down the field a little bit more. And, uh, you know, we were able to execute that and, uh, and come away with the win. Coming away with the win in week one of the playoffs means that you guys, like uh, the other 15 coaches, uh, coaching staffs and teams remaining around, have a, uh, a bit of a scheduling challenge now because you have Thanksgiving in the middle of this week and you guys have to travel. So what does the week look like here for you guys headed into the round two game at Salisbury? Yeah, for, for us, um, we're actually probably very different than any other school that's still in it right now in the, in the, in the sense that we're a trimester school. Our guys started taking their finals last Thursday and Friday. We played the game Saturday, and then they finished taking finals uh, yesterday and today. Today's the last day of finals. Our, so our our uh, our residence hall is actually closed tomorrow, and uh, you know so we'll we'll be an empty campus. But you know obviously football will be here. Um, so in in the guys that will not dress and travel with us this this weekend uh we'll go home for for break as well we don't we don't make them stay here uh during that time uh without traveling um so yeah we'll practice uh we'll practice tonight we uh we have mondays off uh, for them and a uh, good week to do that with their finals um we'll practice tonight uh, about 7 30 um after meetings and then we'll practice tomorrow um somewhere in the neighborhood about four o'clock, which is actually earlier than normal for us, which is nice. Uh, Thursday, we will practice, meet in the morning and practice, uh, be done by 10 a.m. And, you know, we have a, we have enough local guys here that, we, you know, we want to be able to 
let them go home and, and be with their families during Thanksgiving. Uh, and quite a few of our our, uh, our guys from uh, from a distance are going home with those guys to to spend with their families. So uh, that's our plan right now. We'll depart after practicing here on campus uh, Friday morning. So just to ask about trimesters for a second, does that mean another set of classes starts before the holidays or does the second trimester start in January? So the, so the, uh, yeah, the winter, the winter term starts uh, January 6th this year, uh, next year. So they'll start three new classes then. So they have a, they have a break from now until then. Gotcha. So dorm, when you say dorms are closed on Monday or Tuesday or whatever it was, it is like for the next month and a half. Yeah. Yeah. It's winter break. <laughs> All right. Well, that explains, I think that explains why kids would go home because I think sometimes, you know, schools would do their best to get as many of those non-dressing kids at least to be able to make the trip with them. Although I know that the NCA will not pay for that, that you guys would have to pay for that out of your own pocket. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So coming up this week, uh, you said you guys like to prioritize your run game. Uh, that is exactly what you'll be facing on Saturday, except, of course, in a totally different flavor when you guys face Salisbury. I assume that you guys have had some time to look over some of the uh, game film on Salisbury. And I know you guys played Springfield earlier this season. So for those of us who don't follow or for those of our listeners who don't follow closely, tell us a little bit about the differences between what Springfield does and what Salisbury does. Yeah, I mean, our defensive staff is focused, uh, you know, more on on that film. But you know, from what I can see and what I've I've been told by them, um, you know, they they run their offense uh, extremely well. They have very good athletes. They're dynamic um, at all the skill positions. Their line is is big, strong, and athletic. And they uh, they throw the ball more than Springfield did. Uh, so it really makes you. Uh, you know, honor the pass uh, as as much as you're trying to stop their run in the option scheme. Um, and uh, they've shown multiplicity in other games, uh, not as much in the more recent games uh, from from in terms of their their formations. But uh, you know, we're uh, you know we we you just got to be able to line up and key what you're keying and and uh, make sure you believe what your eyes see and and go with it. Right. In the in a sense, it's still. I think the term we probably used 10, 15 years ago was assignment football. Absolutely. You know, it's a do your job week every week, but it, it more so when you play a team that runs this type of offense, um, you know, they're, they're trying to get you to look at things you shouldn't be looking at and, uh, and get out of position. And that's when they hit you with the big play in the run and, or the pass. I mean, their, their quarterback is, is, uh, is, is excellent in both areas. Um, they've hit big plays in, in both, uh, in both run and pass this year. So we have to really, really be assignment, uh, assignment ready. Tell us a little bit about, uh, Will Bellamy, Andre Ross, and then Griffin Beal as well. You know, those kind of guys who kind of key the passing game for you guys. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, Will's, Will's been a starter, uh, since last year. Um, and he, he's grown in each and every game, um, he just uh, he, he's a good facilitator of our offense. You know, he he doesn't make the big mistake. Um, he keeps things uh, moving. He controls our tempos very well. He's got an extremely strong arm, which allows us to throw the ball pretty much anywhere we want on the field, which is a luxury, to be honest with you. Um, and, and a lot of the a lot of the stuff we had to do this past weekend was was throwing the ball on deep outcuts to the field. So. Um, that was a good thing. And then, you know, between Andre and Griffin, they're, they're different players, but they're both so special to us and, and to what we're trying to do. You know, Andre's more of your big play, um, th 
throw the ball down the field, get behind the defense guy. I mean, he's extremely good at running routes, though, as well. Uh, probably don't do enough of that with him instead of just sending him deep uh, most of the time. Um, and then Griffin's just your workhorse. You know, he's the guy here down down the stretch that, you know, we have uh, we really, you know, put a lot on his back in terms of just uh, the pass game and the run game. Uh, so happy that he he uh, he was able to uh, to be named Liberty League Offensive Player of the Week this week because uh, we don't win that game if he doesn't have the type of game he had against Case Western. But that's been that's been what he's done all year, to be honest with you, and he's just been consistent and solid for us. Did you guys think that you could be in this position four years in, you know, taking over a program that had basically bottomed out and trying to rebuild it from zero and ten? You know, the expectation is you want to get there for sure, but it's always a work in progress. Every year is, is new. It, you know, a lot of it comes down to recruiting, um, you know, and, and uh, there's no exact science to recruiting. So, you know, you, the, the team has to gel correctly once you bring new players in. And, and I think uh, that's just been a, uh, a quality of this team, you know, and, and our senior leadership that, you know, they, they've been they've been able to come together as a as a family and, you uh, really trust each other and commit to a common goal. And, and that's, what's been able to get us to where we are today. Yeah. And just, you know, because one of the things that was, I think most interesting the last couple of years is how, um, you know, the nature of the Liberty league and that, you know, those four top teams, especially could really just knock each other off at any given moment or go out and, and knock somebody pretty good out of conference off as well. Oh, it's, I, it is, it is that league has gotten tougher, I think in the last four years. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, you saw four teams were playing in postseason games this year, which I think is great for the Liberty League. Uh, there's quality coaching. There's quality players. Um, every single week, I mean, anybody can eat, can beat anybody. I, I truly feel that. Um, <clears throat> you have to be on top of your game. You, 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 can't, you can't relax on any Liberty League Saturday during the season. So, you know, credit to the coaching staffs in our league. And the players in our league, uh, I think it's a very strong league. Keith, Coach Behrman is right. It's fairly unusual to be on a trimester system uh, in college in general. I know that North Central is and probably dealing with the exact same thing right now. And I can think of another school that's not in the postseason. But between that and the Thanksgiving holiday and, you know, for a, a program that doesn't deal with this all the time, like a Mount Union or a Mary Harden Baylor, that is, you know, something that's a new wrinkle for coaches at this level of the playoffs. Yeah, but it's also a, a good wrinkle. You know, long, long-time listeners of the pod, Pat, will uh, will remember that we we say this frequently. Where every D three school, where we're playing on a under the same set of rules, but not on an even playing field necessarily. There's a different set of challenges at each school, where your different academic requirements or other requirements to get in to recruit players, how much it costs, all these different variables, and then you add variables in like that, where you have different uh, academic schedules. A lot of the teams that make the Stag Bowl are usually taking finals the week of the Stag Bowl, which is not only the most quintessential D3 detail ever, but uh, shows that um, it just really heightens the level of what's going on that that particular week. And so this is this is that weekend for Union and for North Central, where you, you're, you know your mind has to be in a really compartmentalized place where you can be like, all right, I can do school. And then as soon as I'm done with that, shut it off and we're, we're going to go um, play football. And the cool thing is not having class and, and obviously nobody has class on Thanksgiving, but um, not going home for these 16 teams is a 
it's a big deal, but it's also kind of cool because as much as your coach is talking about you guys all need to be a family out there and, you know, you don't all have to like each other, but you have to be able to function together and work together toward a common goal on Saturdays and really all throughout the week, this time where your campus empties out, all those students who come to your games or those tailgates that happen before your games are going to be a little more subdued this weekend, even though it's a bigger game. The fact that you get to spend that that Thursday on campus with your team, you probably will practice. I would. Not a game. Not a game. Not a game. We talking about practice. Can't really. I mean, Thursday is a pretty big day in in the preparation week. Mm-hmm. It's usually the last day you hit and the day you go through all your um, extra extra periods where you have like specialties, blitzes, and certain offensive packages, two minute and whatever. That Thursday is really important, so it's a tough practice to skip, but it's cool to be with your family. Other folks who've never been in the playoffs can relate. Uh, It'll feel a little bit similar to to when you get to campus first in the summer and only athletes are on campus and, and, and the campus is relatively empty and it's this giant college and it's just like you and your friends there. So it is kind of a, a family atmosphere on Thanksgiving and it's a cool opportunity. Now we're going to go through uh, Saturday's games coming up bracket by bracket. And we'll start in the top left with Greg Thomas. In the Mary Harden Baylor bracket, defending national champions Mary Harden Baylor play host to the Huntington Hawks, fresh off of Huntington's upset victory at Barry in round one. The Crusaders eased past Redlands 43 to 14 in their playoff opener, despite being outgained by the Bulldogs and generating just 236 yards of total offense. We've known for a long time to expect greatness from the Crusader defense, and games like this, winning comfortably despite pedestrian offensive output, highlight just how exceptional that Crusader defense is. Cornerback Keith Gibson highlighted the Crusader effort with both a pick six and a punt return for a score in round one. The UMHB offense should find the sledding a bit easier this week against a Huntington defense that is a bit more forgiving than Redlands. In round one, the Hawks struck last in a seesaw game at Barry. Huntington's three-headed offensive attack, quarterback Michael Lamb, running back Eric Thomas and wide receiver Otis Porter are going to have to find a way to avoid giveaways and generate offense and points against the crew defense in a way nobody else has done this season if the Hawks want to pull off what would be the upset of the tournament. In the other round of 16 game in this quadrant, Ortberg heads up to Perkins Stadium to take on Wisconsin Whitewater. Ortberg enters round two coming off of one of the opening weekend's more dominant performances in their 41-3 win at Hope. Night quarterback Noah Dodd completed just 11 passes against Hope, but four of those went for touchdowns in a game that quickly turned into a rout. This week, Wartburg faces a Warhawk defense that gave up zero rushing yards in round one, so Dodd staying sharp is going to be critical, and you might see the Knights bring dynamic playmaker JoJo McNair over from his starting cornerback position to boost the ability for big plays to the offense. The Wartburg defense was able to keep a lid on Hope offensive star Mason Oppel, but their challenge will be much different this week when they face the Warhawks' multiple offensive weapons. Whitewater cruised into round two with a 35-10 victory over Monmouth. Whitewater turned their offense over to quarter 
quarterback Max Mailer in round one in a move that paid immediate dividends. Mailer responded to the starting nod by throwing four touchdowns against just one interception. Despite the plethora of throwing touchdowns, it was a classic pound-the-rock game from the Warhawks as they wore out the Scots with 59 rush attempts for 278 yards while possessing the ball for nearly 39 minutes of game time. Running backs Alex Pete and Jared Ware, as well as that powerful Whitewater offensive line, are going to give Warburg a bigger challenge this week. Whitewater is the favorite in this one, but Warburg has a puncher's chance here if they can force a turnover or two and keep their own offense rolling against a stingy Warhawk defense. Keith, another one of those years in which uh, UMHB had its second round game in the first round against number four seed Redlands, and things are a little backwards with the eight seed coming to town in round two. Redlands probably deserved a better fate. You know, maybe if they'd gotten a matchup like one of their pool C brethren and, and played Hope or Framingham State, or if they'd played who they would have been seeded against in that bracket, they could have gone to Barry. That would have been a, a winnable game, as we obviously saw. But it's Huntingdon in the spot. Huntingdon is the team who beat Barry. And now we've got Huntingdon at Mary Harden Baylor as the only second round matchup that doesn't look all that appealing. But the way great teams stay sharp is by being excited just for the opportunity to stay sharp and by convincing itself or themselves that if it plays poorly, it can lose. The Harden-Simmons last-second field goal win for Mary Harden-Baylor means the coaches don't have to convince them that that's a possibility. Huntington, on the other hand, might be athletically overmatched, so trying to steal a few scores early, maybe generate a turnover, and make Mary Harden-Baylor sweat is the best chance they have. Other game, uh, we've talked about the rematch of that great 2014 quarterfinal. For Whitewater, Max Mayor looked good at quarterback, as Greg said, but uh, going from playing Monmouth to playing Wartburg is a big step up. Yeah, you get a lot of those this time of the postseason, but I think puncher's chance is about right. Six of Whitewater's games have been decided by 10 points or fewer, including the Oshkosh loss two weeks ago. So I think by the nature of the way these Warhawks play and these Knights score, as long as it's close, it'll be in doubt. But no team is more comfortable nursing a small lead or more calm trading punts and possessions mid-game than Whitewater. The physicality will be nothing like Warburg has seen, more than likely, and there's a chance for the program, though not really anybody on the roster, to redeem itself for blowing that 33-16 lead in the fourth quarter against Whitewater back in 2014. Moving on to the bottom left bracket, we've got a game in Chicagoland and a game in the greater Los Angeles metropolitan area with uh, Wheaton versus Central and Chapman versus St. John's. When Central makes the trip to suburban Chicago, the Dutch will be playing in the second round for the first time since 2007. Central's coming off the biggest comeback in program history from down 24 points to beat UW Oshkosh in overtime in the first round. Central and Wheaton, although they're not all that far apart on the uh, Division Three landscape, haven't met since 1940. At this point in the playoffs, in this part of the country, there are no pushovers left, and Central will be looking to give Wheaton all it can handle. But Wheaton remains the Division Three leader in both points allowed at just 6.3 per game and yards allowed at 180.6. They're also in the top 10 in a bunch of categories, including scoring offense. Wheaton's sophomore quarterback, Luke Anthony, has completed 67% of his passes and has thrown for 28 touchdowns this season. And I mentioned Anthony because so far... In these sorts of previews, we've talked mostly about the defense. Uh, Philip Nichols and Adam Torini have each caught more than 50 passes and have combined for 21 of those touchdowns through the air. Meanwhile, uh, they'll be counting on the same guys up front. Patrick O'Connell, uh, Dallas McRae, River Schindeldecker, 
and Jake Holiday will be counted on to keep central quarterback Blaine Hawkins contained. Hawkins is just outside of the top 10 in Division Three in pass efficiency while he's thrown for 42 touchdowns and averages just short of 50 yards per game on the ground. Hawkins completed just 9 of 23, however, and ran for just 18 yards on 11 carries in Central's loss to Dubuque. It's safe that Wheaton will be aiming to do the same when they kick off at noon Central time, 1 Eastern on Saturday. St. John's last played in the Pacific time zone in 2006 with a playoff win at Whitworth, but they're not really strangers to getting in a plane and going somewhere warm after last year's quarterfinal loss at UMHB. Last week, Jackson Erdman surpassed the 10,000-yard passing mark for his career and is fourth among active Division III quarterbacks in career passing yards. He has a chance to do more on Saturday, but Chapman will bring more speed and more pressure up front than Aurora did against the Johnnies in the first round. And, and that's where Chapman has been most successful this season. Last week, Linfield quarterback Wyatt Smith threw for 410 yards, 363 of them in regulation, but completed just 34 out of his 60 passes. Obviously, those are still pretty good numbers, but not as good as Smith was even against Whitworth, Linfield's key conference rival this season. Meanwhile, Chapman held a pretty good quarterback in Whitworth's Leif Erickson under 50% completions, and they obliterated Redlands in terms of time of possession in their games earlier this year, holding the ball for more than 40 minutes. Some combination of that behind quarterbacks Reed Vettel and Johnston McIntyre and the running of Tanner Mendoza would help this weekend in keeping the Johnny's offense off the field. For St. John's wide receiver Ravi Alston, whose voice you heard in Podcast 250, this will be a homecoming for the Southern California native. Alston is coming off a career-best 12 catches for 216 yards against Aurora, and he's one of that trio of sophomore receivers we've talked about previously. That includes TJ Hodge and Matt Moore, and you can hear Erdman talk about those guys in detail on Pod 253. Hope you guys are taking notes. Uh, Chris Harris is also a SoCal guy himself, uh, starting cornerback, senior for the Johnnies, made a key interception last week, which was one of the few defensive stops that St. John's made against Aurora. This is a Chapman offense, which is going to challenge St. John's, but not in the same way Aurora did. They're not going to spread the field with four and five wideouts. They're not going to have speed in the same kind of way, but they'll have a different couple of different looks at quarterback, and that is always challenging. And uh, Mendo Mendoza has to be riding high after last week's game. Also, keep an eye out for Dylan Keefe wearing number 44, whether you see him on defense or on offense. Keep an eye out for Nathan Parkin, who has eight takeaways this season, and Nico Ragus, who has four career kickoff returns for touchdowns. It's the Johnny's first game in California since a second round loss at Occidental in 1985 and their third game in SoCal overall, the other being a win in the 1963 NAIA title game against Prairie View A&M. Which one of those games this week's contest most resembles remains to be seen. Those teams kick off at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. That Prairie View St. John's game is a small college classic too. a lot of great stories attached to that one. But I think the cool thing about the bracket you just talked about is that Central and Chapman, both any one play doesn't go their way in overtime last week, and they're done. They're a round one and done team, and now they have an opportunity to meet each other in a, in a third game in the playoffs if they each are able to win on Saturday. If it weren't for the overtime dramatics in the quadrant of the bracket, Pat, you just talked about, we'd have spent a lot more podcast time talking about how amazing the Union and Brockport comebacks were or that they needed to come back at all. The Dutchman rallied from down 21-3, to blocked a field goal that kept Case Western Reserve from extending the lead when it was 21-16, scored with 2.32 left, and picked off Drew Sexton with 16 seconds left. Brockport took the lead for good in the third quarter, so there weren't as many fourth-quarter dramatics, but it trailed 14-6 and 14-12 for a long stretch of Saturday. 
Discord man and I were watching that score closely from the Delaware Valley Bridgewater game and were surprised at the upset. Uh, that actually never materialized, of course. Now we've got a quadrant with three of the seven remaining unbeaten teams in the country and the fourth team that has advanced in the postseason three years running, but whose current iteration starts with only four seniors. So let's start with that Brockport team and its visit to Muhlenberg, which won a 38-0 tune-up against MIT in round one. Mule's Golden Eagles starts with two of the best scoring defenses in D3, one that allowed 10 points a game all season versus one that allowed 14. Muhlenberg has the nation's third most efficient passer in Michael Nutkowski, who's behind only D'Angelo Fulford and Brock Rudder. Muhlenberg is also the nation's third best team on third downs, converting 55.4% and their third best in the red zone. Tight end Ryan Curtis is the weapon there and everywhere else that Brockport will have to concern itself with. Brockport has turned Jale Code into a efficient power back and quarterback Freddie June is a dual threat. Brockport needs to figure out how we'll block Frankie Feaster, who is literally good for a sack a game with 11 and a half in an 11 game season. And one in almost every game, although he had two and a half against Susquehanna the last time these mules were truly tested and their offense was limited. Brockport will need to figure out how to get itself in a street fight the way Susky did, because I don't think they can afford to trade touchdowns with this offense. Meantime, Salisbury also got a tune-up while Union scrapped for theirs. And since you heard Coach Behrman in the interview, we can talk about the Seagulls for a second. Salisbury's unique brand of option offense has allowed it to lead the nation in rush offense at nearly seven yards a carry, and they also have the nation's highest yards per pass attempt at just short of 12. When they complete a pass, that number shoots up to nearly 21 yards, and I promise you these numbers aren't just skewed because of last week's 83-0 win. Union does not want to fall behind three scores in this one because you aren't getting the ball back. Having played Springfield and holding them to 17 points I think really helps Union because the defensive staff isn't starting from square one teaching the option this week. But Salisbury seems to have so many unique pass plays built into their option looks this year, from wheel routes to deep post routes, and QB Jack Lanham, as Pat has said so many times on the pod before, can actually throw. Salisbury defense needs to play well against Union's offense. Both the playmakers Behrman mentioned in the interview caught touchdown passes during the comeback last week. But I think most of the focus will be on how many fewer than 83 points Union can hold the Seagulls to. Ultimately, this quadrant of the bracket is going to give us one undefeated quarterfinalist, maybe two, and we'll send a 12-0 team to Mount Union or get a visit from one of the other three teams. We don't know who it will be, but if it's a fresh team that gets that far, what happens Saturday will, of course, be part of the reason they get there. There are no easy wins anymore, and this is part of the season where champions are minted. And now to see what they're minting in the lower right Mount Union quadrant is Adam Turr. What did we learn in the first round? Not too much, with three routes and one close game in which the higher-ranked teams all held serve. Mount Union had a weakness exposed. Four lost fumbles, including two muff punts, cost the Purple Raiders. They still defeated Hanover. Mount Union held the HCAC Offensive Player of the Year, Sean Cohn, to just seven yards on 13 carries. The defense will face a much stiffer test this week against Brock Rudder and North Central. The Cardinals rolled their first-round opponent, Wabash, 51-15. Rudder completed 17 of 19 passes. Ethan Greenfield rushed for a whopping 301 yards and five touchdowns. This matchup of top five teams will hinge on the success of the Cardinals' rushing attack. In North Central's lone loss this season, at Wheaton, Greenfield was held to 111 yards on 29 carries. Here's a fun statistic. Of the nation's top 15 rushing defenses, 10 are among the final 16 teams still playing. Mount Union's ranks 15th, allowing 79.6 yards per game. North Central is 17th, allowing 85.8. The Cardinals will have their hands full trying to stop Josh Petroselli, and of course, D'Angelo Fulford always remains a running threat. 
This game also pits the nation's two most efficient passers in Fulford and Rudder. Oh, and also the two most prolific wideouts in the nation in Mount Union's Justin Hill and North Central's Andrew Kaminsky. This game is expected to be one for the ages, at least as far as second-round matchups go. It's not unreasonable to think that had the bracket been sorted differently, these teams could also meet in any of the next three rounds. In the other game, you have Wesley and Delaware Valley meeting for the second time this season. In round one, Wesley turned to a freshman quarterback to make his start of the season in the opening round of the playoffs. All Drew Fry did was complete 24-28 passes for 345 yards and five touchdowns. Not a bad debut. The 58-21 win was the best Wesley's offense has looked all season, considering the quality of the opponent. That earned the Wolverines a rematch, with the team it outlasted in four overtimes in Week 2. Delaware Valley has a chance to avenge that 24-18 loss, once again thanks to its defense. Trailing 19-10 late in the third quarter, the Aggies buckled down. A fumble returned by Vincent DeLeo allowed the Aggies' defense to outscore the Eagles' offense in the fourth quarter. Anthony Fontana's three touchdown passes were enough to overcome his two interceptions. Anthony Tedesco and Michael Nobile led the defensive effort that held Bridgewater to just 31 rushing yards, negative 10 in the second half. In the rematch, the pressure is going to be on Wesley's offensive line. The Wolverines aren't one of the nation's top rushing teams to begin with, averaging 162.8 yards on the ground, and that includes games when they had a healthy E.J. Lee toting the rock. Fry looked great with a clean pocket, but how will he respond with the Nobile brothers bearing down on him? Fortunately for him, Wesley allowed just eight sacks this season. The Aggies' defense has racked up 43. Fontana was intercepted three times by the Wolverines in the regular season meeting. He was only picked off one other time all year before the Eagles got to him twice on Saturday. Ball control will be critical in this second-round matchup. One game in this quadrant should be an electric offensive display, coming down to which defense makes the biggest stop. The other game is likely to be a defensive battle of attrition with multiple turnovers coming down to which offense or special teams can deliver a knockout score. If the games live up to their lofty expectations, this quarter of the bracket will give us a second round to remember. Thanks, Adam. Definitely memorable all over the place. Adam mentioned the decision by Wesley to give freshman quarterback Drew Fry his first start last week. Here to delve a little bit further into that is Wesley coach Chip Knapp. He's interviewed by Sean Green of WDEL Radio, and you can hear a longer version of this conversation, plus hear from Fry himself on the WDEL pregame show on Saturday morning. Coach, you made the decision during last week to go with Drew Fry as your starter. What went into it? And you couldn't have asked for a better start from him. Yeah, I mean, Drew's been, uh, you know, he has, he's shown his uh, quarterback skills all throughout uh, the season. It's just a matter of him getting comfortable with the offense and, and an opportunity to, uh, to put him in there. And then, you know, we, we, we were looking for those opportunities, especially in the second half of the season. Um, uh, you know, sometimes things don't work out that way. You know, with, uh, he was a little bit unknown with his knowledge of the offense, so... Um, but uh, coming into the the last week of the season, we saw an opportunity. He went in there and, and showed that he's a gamer. He can, you know, he's uh, once he gets in there, he's he's a natural. He feels comfortable out there. And uh, and then uh, this past uh, weekend against Framingham, uh, you know, probably one of the best uh, starts to a career that uh, anyone has, has ever seen at quarterback. I, I don't know what he started off, but he was first uh, fifteen to twenty passes were completions, and then. Uh, you know, a couple of throwaways, a couple of drops, but uh, you know, right now he's uh, he's playing at a high level right off the, right off the bat. When you were trying to make that decision to pull him in there, what were you looking for in terms of his grasp of the offense before you would you were willing to put him in in a meaningful situation? 
Well, we're just you know just the command of the of the ten other guys out there and knowing uh, you know different things that to go with the the system and and the logistics of the play. Can you putting people in motion and sometimes you know you forget those things and you concentrate on just you know what the play is and and just just uh, an overall command of uh, the other ten guys. And, and that's what we ask our quarterback to do, take those 10 guys and move them down the field. And once we started seeing his, that he, you know, he's getting more and more opportunities in practice, and, and uh, we saw that, that he was taking command of the offense, getting more comfortable, and then it was just, a, you know, his talent, uh, you know, is taking over right now. Well, in the Christopher Newport game, he gets the hat trick to Chuck Simpson. This week, it's two touchdowns to Mike Creedle, and he gets Jerish Halsey into the end zone as well. You know, you, you talk about system and, and getting everyone involved, I and mean, that's exactly what you're looking for, right? Yeah, I mean, he, and the thing is, he has the ability, like he has a, an ability, you know, in the middle of a play to see guys that are open and uh, and get them the ball quickly. And that's what he did when Jerish was open. He got it to him, and, and – uh, and it doesn't matter who it is, you know, once he pulls the trigger, you know, and he's very accurate right now. He's been, you know, almost 100% as far as throwing accuracy in, in, his, in his last two games. So, um, you know, if, if, if a guy comes open and even even uh, deep down the field, uh, he's able to get him the ball quickly and, and, uh, and he's able to see those things too. So if, if – that that uh, that ability allows him enables him to spread the ball around to all the different receivers. Keith, this harkens back to uh, some of the things that we heard way back in the open, right? We heard uh, a little bit of Chip Knapp talking. We heard, of course, uh, Duke Greco looking for a chance to kind of avenge some of the things that uh, he thought he didn't do right in that four overtime season opening loss to Wesley. Yeah, and that game being back in week two of the season is now what, 10 weeks old, right? It's week 12, week 13 now. 13. So, I mean, I th- teams are different teams. You have players who are injured, players who are in roles that they weren't in at the time. And I think the the real key takeaway or key difference, remember that was really a super low-scoring game. The final was 20 to 18, I mean, 24-18, but it was in four overtimes. And it was, uh, it was a very low-scoring game for much of the day. Delva has to get off to a better start this week against Wesley than it did against Bridgewater fell behind uh, 1910 against Bridgewater could have been a little worse. Bridgewater missed a field goal attempt and to Delval's credit, it hung in there. It uh, was moving the ball all day, even when it, when it um, had a couple of opportunities that uh, where it, it didn't score, got stopped uh, in close, got stopped on a, on a uh, or punted on a fourth and one Bridgewater went for it on fourth and one got theirs. And so that's how they, they built the early lead. Delval just needs to get off to a, a little bit better start here. And I think there's not a whole lot you can, you, you can draw parallel wise from a game that was 11 weeks ago. So it, as neat as it is, and as much as that frames the storyline, I think, you know, if you were to get too deep into the X's and O's, uh, you wouldn't learn a whole heck of a lot. Meantime, Wesley, of course, has been playing with fire in a lot of its close games. And so you feel like that team is a vulnerable team, or you can take the the other tack that I think I took with Wesley midway through the season during one of the game balls, game balls. is that I think, you like to have a team that that uh, gets in these close fights and figures out a way to win. So I think on the other side, though, Mount Union is is actually amped for this opportunity to play North Central. To be honest, if you look at their their highlights on YouTube and Mount Union posts a, a nice highlight package every week, they're pretty amped to play Hanover. And I think that's a credit to Vince Karras and, and the coaching staff to get his team 
you know, a huge favorite. Um, those guys may, some of them, most of them probably never heard of Hanover, much less um, have respect for that program to somehow in a week get so excited where they're, they're like coming out of the locker room. Like, this is what we're here for we're, to play this particular game where this is the season, uh, the season's on the line today. Let's extend it one more week and don't leave anything on the field um, to get all that for a Hanover game. They're definitely going to get it this week for North central. If they don't know the history, they will learn it at some point. Those players, the last time North central came to that stadium in 2013, Mountain Union needed to go down the field with a minute and a half left to uh, to win that game by one point. So it's one of the great games in recent D3 history. And the year before, there was another great game on that field against Mary Harden Baylor. Mount Union is in a situation where they may have to play a couple of great, great games. Uh, as I said earlier, Brock Rudder, I think, can, can win himself the Gallardi Trophy with an outstanding performance on Saturday at Mount Union. I think the, the North Central defense is going to have to play deep halves and uh, and probably let themselves get gashed by Josh Petroselli in the running game. I just don't think they can afford to let Justin Hill run free. Mm-hmm. But I think to their advantage, they have an offensive line that that has a couple of All-Americans on it, was great last week, and maybe, just maybe, there's an O-line that can, that can push the Mountain Union D-line D a little bit around. And if you can uh, avoid becoming one-dimensional against Mountain Union, where that, that defense just loves to pin its ears back and come after the quarterback – North Central has a smart quarterback that can deal with blitzes. And if they're able to get a little bit of a running game going, maybe North Central can put some points on the board and turn this into a, to a fight. One of the things that we see teams often do is, you know, they get enamored with the passing game or they get down by a couple of scores early against Mount Union and they feel like they have to abandon the run. Uh, and they, you know, we're in a situation where if you're just a little bit more patient, where you still have, 45 minutes left in the game or something like that continue to go with what has worked for you uh, is usually a a tactic that might still have some effectiveness whereas uh, in most years past continuing to throw the ball around hasn't necessarily done that Ethan Greenfield that's the guy who ran who uh, went off for 300 yards last week uh Charmore Clark is one of those key offensive linemen you know that's a as much as we've talked about and I've talked about myself uh Fulford and Rudder and seeing those guys on the same field uh it's the same thing with the running game Petroselli and Greenfield also will be very interesting to see again head to head even though they're not both on the field at the same time and I think the other thing to, to watch is that both of these teams want to throw the ball and have quarterbacks who are capable of of taking deep shots but I just don't think they're – I don't think North Central is going to run past Mountain Union. Mountain Union may have the the athletic speed uh, and skill to run past the North Central defense. So I think there's a lot of pressure on that that North Central secondary if they can bottle up Justin Hill or at least limit him. And I know Mountain Union has other guys, and, and uh, at least one of those other guys went off last week. I think if they can just keep themselves from giving up a bunch of big plays in early quick scores, and even if just you're, you're like forcing a field goal attempt on an early drive instead of giving up a touchdown in the first eight minutes of the game, North Central is able to stick to that running game, use Ethan Greenfield and that, that great offensive line, and try to methodically move the ball down the field. We'll find out pretty quickly, I think, whether this is going to be typical Mount Union drubs, highly respected team coming into their stadium, or – it's going to be one of those games that looks like a lot of the semifinals and stag bowls that that Mountain Union has gotten itself into where it has to dig deep, find a way to win, just like all the rest of the normal teams in the country. The points don't matter. That's right. The points don't matter. It's called being a professional. Points don't matter. You play to win the game. And then I give them points. I don't know why. It's just a gag to tie the show together. 
If you want to crown them, then crown their ass. All right, yeah, yeah. The points don't matter. We get that. But uh, Quick Hits is our weekly Friday look at the upcoming set of games with uh, six people predicting not only the outcome of the first-round games, but also the scores. Keith, you noted in our group chat this week that some of my score predictions were eerily close, and here's, I think, where that played out. Uh, I had the highest pick on Salisbury with them winning 68 nothing. I had Union beating Case 24-17 instead of 24-21. Adam uh, Turr and I were both high on Aurora's offense, and I with, went with 54-35, while Adam went 49-35. I had uh, North Central 56-10, while the actual score was 51-15, and I was the high on Wesley with 41, although the actual was, of course, three scores above that. I guess, I don't know if I'm seeing as much similarity as I would uh, expect, but happy with 13 wins getting the style of the game right in that St. John's Aurora game and, uh, you know, not being afraid to go high on some of those first round games, which we do would be blowouts. Yeah. Well, keeping in mind the usual quick hits disclaimers. And then I give them points. I don't know why it's just a gag to tie the show together. That uh, we're all about accountability and that the quick hits are really not for us to pat ourselves on the back. It's just to set the national expectation. So D3 football.com readers and listeners know how to process the scores they're seeing on Saturday. Now there were definitely points. This past Saturday were Case Western Reserve, Western New England, Aurora, Bridgewater, Linfield, UW Oshkosh. All teams that ended up losing were out in front. So while internally we averaged 13 of 16 correct picks, there was some variance in our group across the board of picks. We 11 of us, we were unanimous on those games. We got all those wins. But Frank was the only one who believed in Huntington. Ryan was the only one who believed in Central. Pat, you, and Greg picked Chapman. Four of us went for Brockport and a different group of four went for Delval. And I actually think that speaks to the competitiveness of round one. I'm always the one who's poo-pooing how round one has all these mismatches, but nearly half the games, seven of 16, delivered playoff excitement. And even though only four of those matchups were matchups of top 25 teams. Hunden, of course, was the upset that panned out. The Hawks and Golden Eagles of Brockport are the only unranked teams still playing, although Brockport had crept onto some ballots. Anyway, if you want to keep score, you should. You play to win the game. But the first few playoff rounds will be just as notable for the games with surprise winners as it is for seeing the usual suspects cruise through. Yeah, so I did miss on three games just for, you know, for the sake of accountability. Uh, so the first round champ is Greg Thomas at 14 and two, Adam Turr 12 and four, and the rest of us at 13 and three. And you can see this week's quick hits on the website on Friday, hopefully earlier than noon, because I think we're going to drop this podcast a little bit earlier than Friday morning. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 263, released on November 28th, 2019. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage this weekend. Also, look back at some great uh, feature stories we had on the website this week. We had a great story from Adam Turr about Huntington. Joe Sager wrote a great story about uh, two of the sets of brothers who play for Muhlenberg. And Brian Lester wrote about uh, Chapman's continuing to make this run through the playoffs. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Wherever you get podcasts, because that will help other football fans find it. And you can leave comments on a specific episode for us on the blog page. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. 
We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Additional audio in this edition from Sean Green and WDEL 101.7 FM. Our theme music and a lot of the other music in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Also, look him up on Spotify. And thanks to our correspondents, Greg Thomas, Adam Turd, Frank Rossi, along with guest Jeff Behrman and Sports Information Director Steve Sheridan for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thank you to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Happy Thanksgiving and impressive teamwork on this podcast. A lot of voices besides Pat and I. I mean, you can't go to like a black Thanksgiving without having some mac and cheese, but I've never seen a pumpkin mac and cheese at one, so this should be interesting. I don't know if I would bring it to Thanksgiving, but I would I will be bringing it to other places. Let's put, let's put it that way. The kids all love this one. Even out to this day, I got baked Christmas cookies with my kids, and I don't know if I look like a person who does a lot of baking, but it just comes from having done that with my mom and her mom having her having done it with her mom. So this is that food kind of season where you go from Halloween to Thanksgiving to Christmas and you're like candy, all the great dinner foods, and then Christmas or, you know, whatever other holidays you celebrate are also good family food time too. There'll be a time to, uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.